Well, welcome everybody to our third session in an introduction to the Reformation. You guys all have a notebook and page eight in your notebook. And a couple of uh, announcements. One is if you haven't been able to be here for one or both of the first two sessions, you can listen to those online at our website. And you've got your notebook then to follow along. Also, I mentioned on Sunday that we have these little booklets, uh, Gospel Meditations on the Reformation. So this is $3 next door. So before you leave today, you can pick up a copy of that. I encourage you to do that. It's got 31 devotionals in it, and it relates to a doctrinal issue that was uh, discussed and at issue in the Reformation. So very, very helpful for $3. So next door if you are interested in that. We left off at the bottom of page 8, and we'll pick up there in just, uh, just a moment. But let me just review with you quickly what we've looked at in the first two sessions. We've seen that as the church faced opposition, opposition in two forms, persecution and false teaching, heresy. As that happened, it struggled with how to respond to that. And that struggle was particularly an issue because the apostles had died. By the time you get to the end of the first century, you get into the second century, the apostles have died off. So now how are you going to respond to this opposition? Because when the apostles were alive, they were the go-to guys. The apostles were the founders of the church. And no one after the apostles and after the first century meets their qualifications. And I went through last week those qualifications in Scripture for being an apostle. So there might be people today who claim the title apostle. There aren't any apostles today like the original apostles. Because, for example, you have to have seen the risen Christ in order to be an apostle. We saw last week, Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And, and verse 1. And the apostles could do a number of things that nobody today can do all three of these. I'm just giving you three examples of what they could do. They could heal on demand. They could say, get up and walk. They didn't even, you didn't even have to have enough faith to get up and walk. They could just say, get up and walk. Acts chapter 3 They heal a man who was born without the ability to walk, and they say, get up and get up and walk. And in case you're not sure about that whole, if you don't have to have faith in order to be healed, here's the second thing they could do. They could raise people from the dead. And I guarantee you, none of those people had faith. None of the dead folks, right? So they were able to just do that. And they were able to write scripture. Jesus had, as we saw last week, he had pre-authenticated what they would write. Pre-authenticated. Before they ever wrote anything, he authenticated that what they were going to write was going to be his word. He did that the night before he died. And we saw a couple of passages where he did that. In John 14.26, John 14.26, he says, The Spirit is going to guide you 
He's talking to the apostles. He's going to guide you into all truth. In John 16, 13, he says the Spirit is going to bring to your, again the apostles, remembrance everything that I've commanded you. So they're able to have perfect recall, having spent three years with Jesus, but they're able to remember years later what it was he said, and they were able to then uh, write and oversee the writing of the New Testament. So you get to the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, the apostles have died off. You don't have anybody that can take their place. So what do you do? Because you've still got opposition, you've still got persecution, you still have false teaching, heresy going on. So the early church turned to what are called apostolic fathers. These are, as we've seen in the notes, these are people who were associates of the apostles. You have people like Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John. You have people like Clement of Rome, who was a disciple of the apostle Peter. And they would turn to them. And they began, beginning in the second century, to be elevated above pastors and above churches. The highest ecclesiastical office in the church, once the apostles die out, the highest ecclesiastical office, highest church office, is that of a pastor. That's it. You don't have anybody above that. Did you know that? There's nobody above. There's no super pastor. We saw that in passages like Acts chapter 20, and verse 28, Acts 20 and verse 28, we saw that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, that these three terms are used interchangeably, those of elder and pastor and overseer. But they're used interchangeably of the same person. So they're not separate offices. So you don't have pastors and then you have bishops, let's say, above the pastor. Where did the term, term bishop come from? That's uh, just another English word for overseer. The King James Version uses the word bishop. If anyone desires the office of a bishop, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1, if anyone desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. NIV says if anyone desires the office of an overseer. So overseer, bishop, same, same person. Those are a translation of a Greek word, episkopos. So that's where you get bishop, episcopalian. That is scope. The scopos part means to scope out. And the epi means around, scope out, around. That's the idea of an overseer. You're scoping, you're seeing, you're watching, you're managing the church. Pastor is a shepherd. And then an elder is a presbyteros. So that's where you get Presbyterian from. Now we'll see this later. But notice, you've already, you already start to see some of the reasons that some of the denominations develop. Because of the way they structured the, the church around these offices. But if you look at the Bible itself, you don't have these multi-layers of offices. You've got the apostles. The apostles died. And you're left with pastors and deacons in the church. That's it. Pastors, elders, overseers, bishops. These are all presbyters. These are all interchangeable terms in, in the New Testament. 
Now, if now you can understand, or at least I can understand, I try to put myself in the shoes of being a Christian in the second century. The apostles have died. We've got this false teaching. We've got this uh, persecution going on. How are we going to handle this? We turn to these apostolic fathers. We give them we give them authority. We 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 submit to their authority. If that were just a temporary arrangement, just an extra biblical thing. Remember last week I talked about the difference between extra biblical and unbiblical. If that were just an extra biblical thing that they did as a pragmatic matter because they needed to get things done, they needed to handle this opposition, that'd be one thing. For me, I'd cut them some slack. But unfortunately, it continued. And it continued, as we're going to see, to the point that it developed not just as an extra-biblical thing, but it became an unbiblical thing. It ultimately developed into the Bishop of Rome and the, and the papacy. So page, page number eight. The top of page eight, we saw last week that the empire embraced Christianity. Notice I have Christianity in quotation marks there. And you'll see why. And that begins with the conversion of Constantine. We read this last week. The Emperor Constantine is one of the major figures of Christian history. After his conversion, Christianity moves swiftly from the seclusion of the catacombs to the prestige of the palaces. The movement started the 4th century. That would be the 300s. Started the 4th century as a persecuted minority and ended the century as the established religion of the empire. And thus the Christian church was joined to the power of the state and assumed a moral responsibility for the whole society. And to serve the state, it refined its doctrine and it developed its structure. So the church becomes wedded to the state, in particular in the person of of Constantine. I told you that Constantine was converted. Whether he was genuinely a Christian or not, I don't know. But he had a he had a, a an experience in the year 312 at a battle where he saw the sign of the cross. At this sign, conquer. He won the battle, and so he lightened up on Christianity. We'll see some of the things he did for Christianity in the Roman Empire as a result. So now, middle of page eight, you have an imperial church, and that changed a number of things. It changed worship. The early church had a very simple form of worship. The earliest descriptions we saw last week are from places like Justin Martyr and this book called the Didache. That's how you pronounce that, Didache, Greek word for teaching. And those said this, the service was held on the day of the sun. That would be Sunday. It started with the reading of the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets for a period as long as time permits. An exhortation or a homily, that would be the sermon, based on the reading, was then given by the president. The congregation stood for prayer. The celebration of the Lord's Supper followed the kiss of peace. The elements of bread and water and wine were dedicated by thanksgiving and prayers to which the people responded by an amen. The deacons distributed them to the homes of those unable to attend. They finally took up a collection. Then the meeting was dismissed. All the people made their way to their homes. We saw that that's just a simple service. That's the way it was in the second century. But that would not suffice for the emperor. So now that the emperor is a Christian, that simple second century kinds of worship 
and first century kinds of worship wasn't good enough. Bottom of page 8. So the church becomes Roman. As the emperor became the number one lay person in the church, a simple ceremony no longer sufficed. The pomp and circumstance of the imperial court was adapted to honor the emperor of emperors. Processionals, lights, special dress, and numerous other elements added to the grand setting. So you wondered, where did all that stuff come from? You read through your New Testament and you try to picture the Apostle Paul or Peter or any of them in any of this elaborate, ornate kind of dress. The mitre, you know, the, the headdress, all of that stuff. Let alone the kissing of the ring. Right? So you can't picture that. Well, you can't picture it because it didn't happen. You wouldn't have had it in the second century. Uh, you didn't have it in the third century, the 200s. It wasn't until the fourth century that you start to have that. Why do you have it? Because now the church has gone imperial. And Constantine brings this into now the church. And it has stayed within Roman Catholicism for all of these centuries since. So that's the reason that Catholicism is Roman. Because of Constantine. So by the end of the 4th century, top of page 9, Christianity had achieved a dominant position in the empire. And Christians felt that they could borrow cultural language and ideas more freely than before. Now, I have that in bold there. Christians felt they could borrow cultural language and ideas more freely than before. Because as you read that, you should be able to see that that's a recipe for the church becoming worldly. The church can now borrow freely from the culture. And this then are part of this is part of the seed that gave rise to the Reformation centuries later. You had a worldly church. But where did it come from? It started by wedding the church to the state. So that now the church and the culture become very hard to distinguish. In fact, that's the next point, imperial church government. You know, by imperial that means empire. So, church government in the empire. When you have the state and the church wedded together. And you have the state getting involved in church matters. Constantine ruled Christian bishops as he did his civil servants, and he demanded unconditional obedience to official pronouncements, even when they interfered with purely church matters. So he's used to running the show. He is the emperor. What he says goes. And that includes now he's running the church. And he's telling the church what to do. Here's an example of that. An example of state of involvement in church affairs is seen in the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. The purpose of the council was to address the issue of the relationship of the persons of the Trinity. Some very vocal and influential heretics were teaching that the Son, that is Christ, was a created being. That he was not eternally God. And you see in parentheses there, we say that's Arius' view. So Arius, 
was one of these early heretics who was teaching this. And I'm going to talk about Arius. Uh, we might get to it tonight, but if not, tonight, next week. So I won't spend, uh, spend much time on that now. Other than to say this, the present day uh, successors to Arius are the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's, Witness, Jehovah's Witnesses teach Arianism, that Jesus was a created being. And I'll talk about that later tonight or next week. So you have these false teachers teaching. A council is called in order to address that issue. The result of that council was they put out a creed called the Nicene Creed, Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed. The council denounced Arius on this issue, but the council also represented another important development. I have it in bold there for you. The council was called by the emperor Constantine. So you think about that. The emperor is saying, there's a heresy going on. It's causing a bunch of trouble. I want all you bishops to get together and figure it out. So that's what they did. The Council of Nicaea. But it was called by the emperor. And that set a precedent that would continue for centuries that the emperor would get involved in church affairs to, to that extent. So you had state involvement in church matters and then middle of page 9, church involvement in state matters. Historical events during this era conspired to enhance the reputation of the Bishop of Rome. All right, so where is Constantine at this point? He's in Rome. So the Bishop of Rome now is going to become a very important person. Rome had been the traditional center of authority for the Roman world for half a millennium and Rome was the largest city in the West. Now let me just remind you a little bit about the Roman Empire and how Rome became so important, just briefly. That the Roman Empire was established in 27 BC. 27 BC, before Christ. And the first Roman emperor was Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor until 14 B, 1480, 27 BC to 14 AD. So that means he was the one who was the emperor when Jesus was born. That's why Luke chapter 2 says that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed. And everyone had to go, everyone in the Roman Empire had to go to the hometown of their ancestry which for Mary and Joseph, for Joseph, was Bethlehem. That's why they make the journey to Bethlehem. That's why Jesus is born there. And that ends up fulfilling a prophecy made hundreds of years, hundreds of years earlier. So the Roman Empire was established in 27 BC. Now here we're talking about the years 313 to 590 AD. So the Roman Empire has been in place for hundreds of, hundreds of years. The influence, though, of Rome goes back even before Caesar Augustus because from history, you know, you know a name, Julius Caesar. And uh, Julius Caesar was Caesar Augustus's great uncle. And he didn't have... Julius Caesar was not the first emperor, but he had established and concentrated power in Rome. And he didn't have a son. 
He only had one daughter. She died young. And so he adopted this great nephew. And he left him the power in his will, Caesar Augustus. And that's how he became the first emperor in the Roman Empire. The empire lasted till 476 A.D. So it lasts for about 500 years. All right. So continuing to read. Rome had been the traditional center of authority for the Roman world for half a millennium. And it was the largest city in the West. After Constantine moved the capital of the empire to Constantinople in 330, the center of political gravity shifted from Rome to there. All right, so there's that line. After Constantine moves the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople. So what's that? He sets up shop in what is modern-day Turkey. Istanbul, Turkey. The ancient name for Istanbul is Constantinople. And, you know, he, in all humility, names it after himself. Constantinople. And the, and the capital of the empire is now there. In the east instead of the west. Well, now who's left in this large and great city to run things? It turns out to be the Bishop of Rome. So a vacuum is left. So in bold, in the middle of that paragraph, this left the Roman Bishop as the single strongest individual in Rome for great periods of time, and the people of that area came to look to him for temporal as well as spiritual leadership whenever a crisis faced them. Temporal, that is, you know, not, that is political matters. That is here and now matters, not just eternal matters and spiritual matters. And so here's an example. He was a tower of strength during the sacking of Rome in the year 410 by the Visigoths. And this clever diplomacy had at least been able to save the city from being burned. The emperor at Constantinople was remote from Rome and its problems, but the bishop was near at hand to exercise effective authority in meeting, notice, political as well as spiritual crises. When the imperial throne in the West finally did fall to the hands of the barbarians in that year, 476, the people of Italy came to look to the Roman bishop for political as well as spiritual leadership. So, you see how that happened. We start with a church that is a simple church led by the apostles, founded by the apostles, Carrying out Jesus' command, the apostles die, a vacuum is now left for leadership. They look for that leadership in the apostolic fathers. As a pragmatic matter, they give authority to these apostolic fathers. If that had just been for a period of time as an extra-biblical matter, okay. But over time, these circumstances conspired to make the bishop of Rome something special and above the church and as we're going to see later dictating now to the church so what was extra biblical became became unbiblical that's how it happened now page 10 still in section 2 ancient church history looking at the years 313 to 590 all of this sets the scene for what would later be the reformation 
we've seen that the conversion of the Roman Empire to Christendom, that's in quotation marks, Christendom. That's a term that's used sometimes. You'll read that. And it just means the entire culture that was created by the marriage of Christianity and the state. Christendom. We've seen that the conversion of the Roman Empire to Christendom at the end of the 4th century had great consequences for the church, some good and some bad. Here's what church historian Bruce Shelley says. Constantine allowed Christian ministers to enjoy the same exemption from taxes as the pagan priests. Okay, that's good. He abolished executions by crucifixion. Good. He called a halt to the battles of gladiators as a punishment for crimes. And in the year 321, he made Sunday a public holiday. So let me just stop there. There's all these good things. There's another one there. And then we'll see some of the bad things that he did. You guys hear me okay? Got that thing going? I'm trying to yell. Okay. He made Sunday a public holiday. I just want to uh, make sure you know how our practice of meeting on Sunday to worship came to be. It was not because Constantine passed a law and said this is when Christians are going to worship on Sunday. It was not because of that. Now, he did that. He made Sunday a holiday, a public holiday, which was a great thing for Christians. But Christians were already worshiping on Sunday centuries before that. And the reason I bring it up is I've had people tell me this over the years. I've had people tell me who believe that you're supposed to be, we're supposed to be worshiping on Saturday. Why Saturday? Because that's the seventh day. And the Bible says six days the Lord created, the seventh day he rested, the seventh day will be a Sabbath unto you. You shall not do any work on that day. That's what the first part of your Bible says, the Old Testament. That was part of the law. So you have the, the Sabbath day. And for centuries, that was the day of worship. It was the Sabbath, Saturday. But here's Constantine making Sunday a public holiday. Well, how did Sunday become a big deal? Well, here's how. So, and I'll, I'll give you the passages if you care to uh, if you care to write them down. But Matthew 28 and verse one, Matthew 28 one, Mark 16 and verse nine. So Matthew 28 one, Mark 16 and verse nine, Luke 24 and verse one. And John 20 and verse 1. So Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 9, Luke 24, 1, John 20 and verse 1. Notice all four of those, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of the Gospels in your New Testament. The Gospels record the life and ministry of Jesus when he was on earth. All four of them have this, namely, the resurrection of Jesus occurring on the first day of the week. And all four of those verses I just gave you all say that. They mention specifically the first day of the week. It was on the first day of the week that the women went to the tomb and they find it empty. He rose on the first day of the week. So now, as a result of that, Christians begin to worship on a different day. 
Not the seventh day of the week, but the first day of the week. Sunday. Sir? Um, isn't there a verse in Revelation where John says something about um, a day of worship that is a different word that, that's used for the Sabbath? It's a specific Lord's Day. It's really good. That is really good, man. Well, I was watching a debate by James White. Oh, you were? Well, you, I thought you were prophetic because because I'm going to say that right now. So, in addition to that, and those verses I gave you, so that's good. That's very good. So that's the basis for it, that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, say those four passages I gave you. But now, as time goes on in the unfolding of your New Testament, you now find Christians actually worshiping on the first day of the week. And one of the places that you find that is in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Acts 20 and verse 7. And it says they met on the first day of the week and they broke bread. That is, they had communion together. So this has now become the day of worship for Christians. In addition, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, but in addition to that, you have 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. And there, Paul, who wrote that, says, on the first day of the week, Lay aside, each of you, a sum of money in keeping with your income to bring for an offering. When? First day of the week. And then what Clay is referring to. The last book of your Bible, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. Revelation 1.10. John, who wrote Revelation and was given this vision by God of the end times, says... I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. On the Lord's day. And people are just supposed to know what the Lord's day is. There's a reason why they knew what it is. Because that's what they had started doing. Was worshiping on the first day of the week, the name of which became the Lord's day. So the Lord's day is there. In fact, when you come on Sunday, which you should do. And when you get a program and you open it, at the top left, it says the Lord's Day. And then it has the date every week. I know because I put that in there. And I use that term, the Lord's Day, to signify this very thing. So it's the day of the Lord, the day that the Lord raised. Now, this is a proof, one of several proofs of the resurrection. Because somehow you've got to explain how the day of worship went for hundreds of years from Saturday to Sunday. The only explanation for that is that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. Now, sometimes you'll get people who'll say you got they're called Sabbatarians, you got they go by different names, but of course you got the seventh day Adventists. So named because Seventh-day worship. So if you see a Seventh-day Adventist church, they meet on Saturday. And I have talked to some of them over the years, and they do this whole Constantine thing. Constantine was the one who said that Christians are going to worship on Sunday. No, he made it a public holiday. They had already been worshiping on Sunday for 300 years. It started in New Testament times. Further, 
there's nothing in the New Testament that tells you, in fact, quite the contrary, that you're to observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath requirement was done away with the death of Jesus when the law itself was done away. The entire law was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus canceled the law, the written code, Paul calls it in Colossians chapter 2. So that you're not obligated to Saturday Sabbath. There is no Sabbath command. Now, here's why I beat on that. Even Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sunday is the Lord's Day. So all the requirements in the Old Testament that applied to the Sabbath, those are not applied to Sunday in the New Testament. You don't find that. So you'll never hear me call Sunday the Sabbath. And I recommend you don't do that either. We're no longer under that law. And if you want to jot this down, Romans 14 and verse 5. Romans 14 and verse 5. Romans 14, 5. Paul says there, you know, one person regards one day as special, one regards another. But in Colossians 2 and verse 16, Colossians 2, 16, he says, let no one judge you with regard to a religious festival, new moon, or Sabbath day, he says. He's making the case we're not under that anymore. So Sunday is not the Sabbath. I had somebody ask me recently, was it you? Uh, about so because you were talking to somebody about whether or not you know you can mow the lawn on Sunday and all that. There's no there's no law in the, in in scripture about you mowing the lawn on Sunday. So if you want to mow the lawn and if your lawn is say a foot high, please do mow it on Sunday. All right. <laughs> all right. Back to then. Top of page ten. Middle of that paragraph. Thanks to his generosity, the generosity of Constantine, magnificent church buildings arose as evidence of his support of Christianity. All right, so stop there for a minute. Now, because you've got the state helping the church, think about what magnificent buildings you can now build with the money from the state. So when you go on these tours and you you know you see these beautiful and ancient churches and you go, man, where did they get the money for that? That's tax money, baby. That's where they got it. And then, you know, we we go scrounging around, meeting for 12 years in rented facilities. We finally find a closed elementary school and all that, and we're thrilled. But that's where it came from. And for centuries, these magnificent cathedrals were built, but they were built with state money very often. We're going to see that St. Peter's Basilica in Rome That was built in large part by the sale of, in effect, forgiveness of sins through something called indulgences. But we'll see that. We'll see that later. All right, so you got these magnificent buildings. Now, now earlier, uh, back on page 8, we read that Christianity moved from the seclusion of the catacombs to the prestige of the palaces. Remember that line that we read earlier? So now the church has moved from houses, meeting in houses, to now being able to meet in church buildings. We are able to meet in this place, and I am extremely thankful that God gave us this place. It's no cathedral, but it's devoted to God. 
And it is therefore sacred because it's set apart. That's what sacred means. It's set apart for the work of the Lord here. Now, just think for a moment. Was it a good idea for the church then to, in large part, turn in the houses for church buildings? Because they didn't have to. They could continue to meet in houses. But now they got the opportunity to meet in to meet in church buildings. Okay? Now, this wedding of the church and state is going to create all kinds of problems. It's going to result in the Reformation. But for me, again, I always try to put myself in their shoes. If it's me, and I've got the opportunity as a Christian to have more people come and hear the gospel, then I'm down with that. I'm good with that. For, my, for myself, I think it's a, a fine thing. But you could still meet in houses. You could still meet in a church building. To this day, you can still do that. Because the Bible doesn't prescribe either one of those. Now, here's why I'm beating on it. Have you ever met somebody who tries to convince you that churches need to meet in houses? I know people like that. I know some people like that, like right now. I know some people like that that used to go to this church. Now, is it okay to meet for a church to meet in a house? Yeah, absolutely. And churches meet in houses all over the world. But the idea that if you want to be a biblical church, you need to meet in a house is nonsense. The Bible doesn't prescribe where you meet. If you have the opportunity to meet in a hall, like Paul did, by the way, in Acts chapter 19, where he rented a lecture hall for two years. So he rented a lecture hall. Sometimes they met in the temple courts, Acts chapter 5 tells us. Paul would go and preach in the marketplace. So there were all kinds of different venues, and that included houses. But the idea that the church and the real church and the pure church only meets in houses is nonsense. And here, now I'm on a roll. I'll I'll get off this. But here's the other piece of that. Who's the pastor of this house church you got going? Who decided that this guy's a pastor? Now, you could have a duly ordained pastor leading a church in a house. Absolutely. That's all good and fine. But you don't have a guy decide, I'm going to be a pastor and I'm going to start a church in my house. Everybody clear on that? So if you get invited to somebody's house who made themselves a pastor, then I would just suggest you decline. All right. If you have any questions about that, I'll be happy to answer them further. I feel much better having gotten that off my chest. (laughs) Continuing on, middle of that paragraph. But there were also, so these are all the good things, but there were also the masses who now streamed into the officially favored church. Prior to Constantine's conversion, the church consisted of convinced believers. Now many came who were politically ambitious, religiously disinterested, and still half-rooted in paganism. This threatened to produce not only shallowness and permeation by pagan superstitions, but also the secularization and misuse of religion for political purposes. That's a mouthful, but you see what's being said there? Now it's cool to be a Christian. So lots of people start coming into the church now. It's safe to be a Christian. You're not going to be killed. And it's where the action is. The emperor is a Christian. 
He's building really nice places. If you want to get connected politically, be a Christian. So now the church is becoming worldly because you're having the world coming into the into the church. Now, with every one of these things, do you see a theme? I try to have you see what happened historically and then try to apply that to what's going on today. Do you see a parallel to any of this? When you make the church cool, then lots of people from the world want to come into it. The church was never designed to be cool. The church was never designed to be the place that everybody in the world wants to be. The world has a problem with Jesus. Most people don't like the true and living Jesus. Most people don't. So if you want to make your church hip, if you want to have a seeker church, then you're going to wind up bringing the world into your church. And it's going to become worldly. And that's what we've got going. Now, some of us who know church history have seen this movie before. We know this stuff. We know how this has gone. But people who don't, they think this is the first time anybody thought ever of making the church the place to be. Well, it's not the first time. And it's always had disastrous results. So one response to the increasing worldliness of the church was to withdraw. Before the 4th century closed, the end of the 300s, Christianity became the official religion of the sprawling Roman state. The church in the catacombs was one thing, but what does Christianity have to do with palaces? Under the emperor's tutelage, the church learned to serve the seats of power by formulating the faith for the masses, hence the age of these great councils. Those Christians who had no, no yearning for palaces headed for the wilderness in search of another way to grace. Revered hermits soon found themselves in the vanguard of a movement, monasticism, the wave of the future. All right, so you see what's happening there. The church is becoming worldly, and you get people in the church who say, it's becoming worldly, I'm getting out of this. So they start monasteries. That's what monasticism is. They start monasteries, monks. They withdraw. You see up at the title of Lesson 4, you see what it's called? Tune out, turn in, drop out. That's uh, for those of you in the 60s. I know, I did it on purpose that way, okay? I mixed it up on purpose. Gary's going, that's not the way I remember it. But the idea is here that people had to make choices about what they were going to do now. If you want to be a real Christian, can you stay in this kind of a worldly church? And some people opted to drop out of it. So, here's here are the various choices that people had in what to do because of this loss of antithesis. It's a fancy word, loss of antithesis. Antithesis means just contrary, a stark contrast. So, with the loss of the stark contrast between the church and the world, between believer and unbeliever, now Christians were faced with some choices. And I want to briefly show you how that went. There's the sacred versus the, the secular. Sacred and the, and the secular. So you've got sacred, which means set apart. 
secular, which means just time-bound, earth-bound. And between those, it's a myth to say that they're that they're neutral. God is, I say there on page 10, that's a Latin term, contra mundum. Latin mundum means world. Contra means against. God is against the world. God is against the world. He's against the world system. Now he, in his grace, does something to redeem the world. So he loves the world that has sinned against him. But he is contra mundum. And John chapter 17 and verse 9, Romans 12, 2 says, Be not conformed to this world. James 1.26 says, Pure religion that God our Father accepts is this, to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. It's James 1.26 we have listed. James 4.4 Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? That's what it says. And then you've got 1 John 2.14 and 15. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all of it comes not from the Father, but from the world, says John. The world and its desires pass, pass away. But he who does the will of the Lord lives forever. So you've got this myth of neutrality. God is not on easy terms with the world. The church should not be on easy terms with the world either. But we get lulled into thinking this because of a false understanding of what I say next there, common grace and total depravity. Total depravity just means the total sinfulness of individuals. But God's common grace makes our full sinfulness not look as bad as it really is. You see, the fact that you can, you're going to go home tonight, and you're going to go home in the dark, and in all likelihood you're going to make it to your house safely without getting shot and killed. That's a good thing. And you've done that your whole life. And you might even live in a neighborhood where you can leave your doors unlocked, which is a beautiful thing, if that's true. So you could get lulled into the idea that, you know, I hear pastor, he talks about the Bible, and the Bible's like a th over a thousand times. It uses the word sin and sinner and sin and sinfulness and sinning. <laughs> Bible has a lot to say about that, but it doesn't just—it doesn't look that bad to me out here. It's just not that bad. Every now and then we have these tragedies. We got a Las Vegas tragedy or something like that, but that's the exception, not the rule. It's just not that bad. You know why? That's because of common grace. It's not because people are better than the Bible says they are. It's because God is restraining the effects of evil by His common grace. Common grace—that is grace that is commonly given to everybody, not just Christians. It takes many forms, including the government, including police. Those are avenues of common grace that restrain the effects of evil. But don't ever be lulled into the idea that people are better than the Bible says they are. We're not. Alright, so there's the myth of neutrality. 
And then there's the church in the world in history. In New Testament times, first century, there was the stark contrast, the antithesis. Then the early church, then after the first century, there was equivocation, I call it. Bottom of page 10. The most pertinent fact of the Constantinian shift was not that the church was no longer persecuted. That's true, it was no longer persecuted. But that was not the most important thing. But rather that the two visible realities of the church and the world were fused together. There was, in a sense, no longer anything to call world. State, economy, art, rhetoric, superstition, and war, they were all baptized. The distinction between church and the world was blurred, and to a large degree, it was eliminated. And again, I submit to you that's some of what's happening in our churches today. Top of page 11. Nevertheless, it was still necessary to distinguish true believers from nominal, that is, believers in name only, or false believers. St. Augustine, for example, thought that true Christians might make up as little as 5% of the visible church world. So he and other theologians constructed and refined the doctrine of the true but now invisible church. All right, so you see how bad the church is now becoming. So how worldly it's becoming. You now can't identify the church in the church. So you now have to say, well, at least we know that there are believers out there somewhere. Even if we can't see them congregated every Sunday in a visible place. What time period was St. Augustine? St. Augustine is in the 4th century, 300s. Yeah, yeah, fourth century. So during the time of Constantine is Saint Augustine. So before Constantine, quote, Christians had known as a fact of experience that the church existed, but they had to believe against appearances that Christ ruled over the world. All right, you see what I'm saying? They knew because they would get in those house churches, or they would be in those catacombs, and they were being persecuted. They knew the church existed because they saw real live believers who took a stand for Christ and who had the courage to do that. They were laying it all on the line. So they knew that. But they had to believe against appearances that Christ ruled the world because they were losing. I mean, they did. They did believe that, but it didn't look that way. All right. But after Constantine, one knew as a fact of experience that Christ ruled over the world because we're winning, so to speak. But you had to believe against evidence that there existed a believing church. You see that? So we're winning by all the trappings, but not really, because the church is worldly. So you had equivocation. During the Middle Ages, you had what I call sacralization. Medieval Roman Catholicism divided work into categories of sacred and secular. This attitude was reflected by Eusebius in the 4th century. Two ways of life were given by the law of Christ to his church. The one is above nature and beyond common human living, holy and permanently separate from the common customary life of mankind. It devotes itself to the service of God alone. Such then is the perfect form of the Christian life. And the other, more humble, more human, permits men to have minds for things like farming, for trade, and more secular interests and a kind of secondary grade of piety is attributed to them. Do you see what's happening here? you got two classes of people. you got the people who are devoted to Christ, and you got everybody else. And if you want to really be devoted to Christ, you got to become kind of a monastic. That's what it's saying. 
That's what I mean by sacralization. Now, in order to truly be holy, that's what you have to do. But during the Reformation, you have what I call equilibrium, bringing that back into proper biblical balance. Notice this. Luther was the person who, more than anyone else, challenged the notion that clergymen, monks, and nuns were engaged in holier work than the housewife or the shopkeeper. This is one of the great things that Luther did. But he was on the tail end of this back-and-forth pendulum that I'm trying to describe for you. And he saw this happening, and he's saying, no, that's, that's not true. Everybody who's a true believer in Christ is a saint. They're called saints. We're, if you're a believer in Christ, you're a saint, believe it or not. Saint Clay. Saint Paul. We already have a Saint Paul. You can't. <laughs> Saint Aaron. Yikes. But that's what he said. He wrote, quote, It looks like a small thing when a maid cooks and cleans and does other housework. But because God's command is there, even such a small work must be praised as a service of God, far surpassing the holiness and asceticism of all monks and nuns. Wow, that's courage, man. But he's right. William Tyndale said that if we look externally, there's a difference betwixt washing of dishes and preaching of the word of God. But as touching to please God, none at all. Everybody has their station and their calling. According to the Puritan Perkins, the action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as is the action of a judge in giving sentence, a magistrate in ruling, or a minister in preaching. Equilibrium. But today, in the present, this pendulum. Today what we have is what I call secularization. Secularization. The church is becoming secular. Bottom of page 11. When fundamentalism emerged as a movement in the United States, it did so as a persecuted minority group, says Richard Kebido in a book called The Worldly Evangelicals. The fundamentalists rejected and were rejected by the increasingly liberal and inclusive denominations in which they had been nurtured. They tried to nourish their children and future ministers free from the corruption of the world, its values, and practices. Thus, the fundamentalists believed in Christ against culture. But, he goes on, top of page 12. To say the neo-evangelicals, or neo means just new, new evangelicals. They broke with fundamentalism in the early 40s. This would be the 1940s. Because the world was passing them by. And they were no longer convinced that the world was that bad after all. At least not as bad as the fundamentalists had maintained. The evangelicals knew that to influence the world for Christ, they would have to gain its attention in a positive way. In a word, they would have to become respectable by the world's standards. Oh, man. That's exactly right. That guy who wrote that, a book called The Worldly Evangelicals, Richard Cabadeau, he was not a fundamentalist. He was just, this is the way it was. It's exactly the way it was. This is over 100 years ago that fundamentalists started leaving denominations that were denying cardinal doctrines of truth. 
that the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus is virgin born, that he bodily rose from the dead, that these miracles happen. You say churches deny that stuff? You Absolutely. Seminaries denied that stuff. Princeton Seminary, which was founded as a Presbyterian seminary, denied the things that I just said. And so, in the 1930s, a bunch, a group of guys left Princeton Seminary, went down the road in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, and they established Westminster Theological Seminary. Five professors from Princeton. I had the opportunity to study at Westminster. Started because of this process. But what was happening is these seminaries were saying, we've got to gain the world's approval. And that was what was happening in the church in the Middle Ages. The church had gained the world's approval and became worldly. And so Luther, Calvin, and others came along to reform that. Those were part of the seeds of of the Reformation. All right, an analysis then of monasticism, of breaking away, dropping out, there's the psychology of monasticism that is just how you how you think about yourself and the Christian life. And monasticism is, it did some very good things for the church. And under the circumstances and how worldly the church was, I understand why people did it. But it's not the normal Christian life to become a monk. And the way you see yourself, you as a Christian, me as a Christian, we should not see ourselves as isolated people, just me and Jesus having our time together. God made us to be social beings, one, just as human beings, but also made us to have an effect on others with the gospel. Being a monk doesn't do that. Problems then with monasticism. There's a tendency toward asceticism. That is, asceticism means denying yourself. So denying yourself any kinds of earthly pleasures as proof that you belong to God. There's a tendency toward legalism. Establishing rules in order to show that you're fully devoted to God. And then, of course, the isolation that goes with it. But there were benefits of monasticism as as well. Believe it or not, people who were looking for something other than a worldly church admired these people. And as a result, there were people who came to, to faith. And they maintained the integrity of the faith rather than denying. Now, I'd like to spend our last couple of min- minutes just uh, bringing that all then into focus from a biblical standpoint will be done for tonight. So there, I've just tried to give you this broad sweep of how from Const- Constantine and the merging of state and church, that the church became worldly, and then the responses to that, and how we can see that same kind of historical movement happening even in our own day. So what's the biblical answer to all of that? In John chapter 17, John chapter 17, it's the night before Jesus dies, and he prays a prayer. John 17 is all a prayer of Jesus the night before he dies. And he prays, first of all, for himself. And he says, Father, the hour has come. 
Now glorify me in your work. Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world began. So he knows the hour has come for him to die and finish his work. But then he prays for the apostles. And then he prays for you and me. He prays for those who will believe the apostles' message. That would be us. Now, how great is that? Just The night before Jesus dies, he prays for you. He says this in that prayer. These followers of mine, verse 11, John 17, 11. John 17, 11, they are in the world. But then in John 17 and verse 16, verse 11, he says they are in the world. Verse 16, he says, but they are not, what? Of the world. So you got the world and you got them, and they're not the same, Jesus says. They're in it, they're surrounded by the world, the fallen values of the culture. They're surrounded by that, but they're not of that. They have different values. So in verse 17 of John 17, he says, Sanctify them, set them apart. Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. All right. They're in the world, they're not of the world. By your word, set them apart, sanctify them. So there are four approaches that you can take between the Christian and the world. Four. Let me give them to you, and we'll be done. Or four approaches, not from a Christian and the world, but an individual in the world. The first one is this. You can be in the world and of the world. That's one approach. In it and of it. Now, who would that be? People who are both in it and of it. That's unsaved people. That's non-Christian people. They are both in the world and they are of the world. So that's one. Or you can be not in the world and not of the world. That is, you're not of it. Your values don't come from the world, but you're also not in it. Who would that be? That would be the monks. That would be the Amish. Separating yourself physically from the world. Or, here's a third one. You can be not in the world, but you can still be of it. Now, who would that be? This is what I believe is the common Christian approach, the common evangelical approach today. Not in the world, but still of it. That is. We've got our own places, we got our own churches, we got our own hangouts, we got our own coffee shops, we got our own TV shows, we got our own music, we got our own everything. Here's the thing, we're worldly, we're of the world. Not in it, but still of it. Importing the world's values into what we do. But what's the biblical approach? In it, and not of it. So, that is what the church has always struggled with. That's what it struggled with through these years. It failed that miserably throughout the Middle Ages, and that was a large part of what Martin Luther and others were responding to. All right. We'll pick up on page 13 next week. See you then, Lord willing.